The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Charlotte Green is people! Need my sister and my daughter! Rosebud. What's in the box? And like that, he's gone. Hello and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and this week we will be spoiling the latest installment in the DC Universe, Justice League, directed by Zack Snyder. Here to talk with me about Justice League is Jonathan Fisher, a senior editor at Slate from Washington, D.C. Hey, John. Hey, how's it going? Pretty well. So you are finishing up your review of this movie right now, so I'll just start off by asking, did you like it? No. Uh <laughs> Uh, Very well, polite, polite pause there. It's a, it's more of a no, but um, I, you know, as we'll discuss, I found a, a large chunk of this movie to be punishing in all of the ways. The last um, Zack Snyder DC Comics team up movie, uh, Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice from last year was. Um, that said, there are some tonal uh, changes to this one. In, in part, uh, thanks to the involvement of Joss Whedon, the uh, uh, writer and director uh, responsible for Marvel, Marvel's Avengers, that, that do make it um, fun-ish in parts. Um, and, and um, you know, and actually, to my, to, to my surprise, after, you know, a pretty uh, rough start of the movie, I actually did find myself having a certain amount of fun during it. Well, I mean, a little bit of the backstory to this movie maybe helps to understand why it has those shifts or it has kind of fun leavening the the dreariness, which is that Joss Whedon, in addition to co-writing the script, took over the direction for Zack Snyder at one point during the shoot, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, tragically, um, Zack Snyder, you know, toward the end of the, the film's production, he ended up stepping back because... Um, uh, his 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 daughter killed herself uh, this past year, um, and he decided that he needed the time to mourn. Um, at that point, you know, the film had um, they had already brought on Whedon to help, um, you know, basically write some reshoots that would help um, uh, lighten up the tone. So at that point, uh, Snyder asked Whedon, who is no stranger to directing ensemble ensemble superhero movies, uh, to to direct the reshoots. Right. And so I do you do you think it's the case? Do you feel like you can tell the moment that that Whedon takes over that you can tell which which those scenes are, whether it's the re- the rewriting or the reshooting? I think if you're if you're um, if you're a geek like me, there's a temptation during the movie to sort of sort out who directed what. Um, and, and, and I think it's it's it, it's possible that um, I mean, to me, the film actually does seem aware of it. It, it seems aware of its approaches, short shortcomings. So I actually imagine that some of those, um, you know, I guess leavened moments actually came from Snyder himself. You know that said, you know there are a lot of scenes once the team finally teams up where you know they're sort of just hanging out. There's an improvisational vibe. You know there there are sort of um, uh, you know uh, jokes that you know cut the pomposity of the whole thing. And, and that and that's basically Whedon's touchstone. It's what he did in the Avengers. Um, you know the um, the it, it sort of borrows it, it, to a small degree the sort of the shtick of the Marvel movies, which is really the um the sort of like superhero version of like the Judd Apatow comedy shtick, which we really really saw in in Thor Ragnarok. I think that was the last movie we spoiled, in fact. And uh and I mean to me, as a non comic book movie follower, like I've missed a lot of the movies in these in these long franchise serials. Although I did see, unfortunately, Batman versus Superman the pr- prior to this one, but. 
it just seems so obvious that the Marvel, the, the quality of the banter and the, the camaraderie in, in these Marvel, you know, group hanging out movies is just so superior that it, it really stands out. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, going in to this franchise, um, I think the sense was that, um, you know, Marvel owns the whole fun thing, but we can do the sort of the grim, dark, serious thing, which is, um, you know, actually its own you know, defensible tradition in, in the source material. Um, you know, it, it's pretty clear that Snyder is heavily influenced by writers like Frank Miller, who wrote um, The Dark Knight Returns, a, a book from the 80s that had a sort of um, older dystopian Batman that's very much the Batman that appeared in the last film, you know, often, you know, with with shots lifted from the comic book panels. I, I think that, that um, you know, Given the sort of um, the reverence that those comics are, are treated with, as well as the success of Snyder's past movies like, you know, 300, um, you know, Watchmen, another comic book a- adaptation, um, Sin City, based on a different Frank Miller book, I-, I think that they felt that that tone would be translatable to-, to-, to DC Comics. And that that was that was where they would differentiate themselves. Unfortunately, you know, as we saw last year, it was just... Uh, and I keep referring to this word, but it was just utter punishment. Um, it was really, um, you know, the movie was, it, it was long. It was, the plot was, you know, utterly tangled, even though the premise was very simple. Batman and Superman are going to have a fight. Um, it, it was, it was ponderous when it didn't really need to be. It had, you know, all these sort of, um, Easter eggs and, and other, um, you know, treats for, for hardcore fans that probably, were very alienating for everyone else. It was just not fun, and it felt like work. And the, um, and the motivations made no sense. But okay, so let's assuming that people know at least the big reveal at the end of Batman versus Superman, which the spoiler was not going on at that point. The podcast, so we can spoil it right here. But the end of that movie is that Superman dies. He sacrifices himself to save the world, basically. Right? Am I remembering that right? So as we begin the Justice League movie, we're in that Gotham City. We're in the world in which everyone is mourning Superman, and he's just died. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, Superman ha- has has died. He sacrificed himself. Um, Batman uh, and Wonder Woman at the end of the last movie. Um, Batman being played by Ben Affleck. Uh, Wonder Woman being played by Gal Gadot, uh, the Israeli actress. Um, you know, they sort of realized that um, they would need to be allies. They would, should maybe identify some prospects because it became clear at the end of the last mo- at, of the last movie that you know something malevolent was coming uh, to Earth. Um, that leaves that takes us to this movie. Uh, the Earth seems to be in mourning. The suggestion is also that without Superman, the Earth is now newly um, uh, vulnerable. Um, and, and Batman, um, being the the, de- the detective that he is, is beginning to trace um, these sort of bug-like uh, scouts, as he calls them, uh, which are which are um, the film later tells us are called parademons. They're these. Um, I-, I guess they're kind of like you know flying insect monkey things um they're i mean they're not um they're not very interesting uh, yeah well this is something i think we should establish right up top i think you will agree with me on this that the villains the the main the main villain who we'll talk about the leader of these guys and also these insect guys are just terrible they're terrible villains they're not scary they're not differentiated there's not really any sense of what their i mean i guess their motivation is just to wreak havoc upon the world and make it a hellscape as one of them says at one point but there's not even any kind of sense of the design behind their evilness so i just found them completely impossible to care about. Right, and and the villain is this this uh, character named Steppenwolf, who... Um, <laughs> Born to be if, wild. Yes. <laughs> um, 
He sure is. Uh, and he, he's, um, he's a new god, which is um, in the DC comics, this you know, faraway planet of powerful beings, doesn't matter. Um, he, yeah, he's awful. And, and not only is he awful, but he's um, played by, um, I might pronounce his name wrong, but Sierra Hines, who is just a fantastic actor. Um, he was, uh, you know, he was Julius Caesar in, in Rome. Um, um, he was um, Mance Raider on Game of Thrones. People will remember from him, him from recently. Um, it's just such a waste. He's one of those it's that guy actors, right? I mean, everybody yeah. has seen him in lots and lots of things over the years. Yeah, it really is a waste. And his, it really is also just using his voice. There's not really a sense that the uh, the CGI creature who's speaking in Sierra and Hines' voice is kind of using his body in the way that, you know, I don't know, that Andy Serkis's body is used in his characters or something. There's just a, a cartoony evil guy who my favorite line that he speaks, Steppenwolf, is, is scribbled down in my notes here. And it's <laughs> useless humans. Where is my mother box? <laughs> oh, that was my favorite, too. I wrote that down, too. Uh, I'm getting a word from our producer, Daniel Schrader, that's pronounced Kieran Hines. So sorry about that, Irish people out there. Um, but so I want you to, to explain what, what the mother box is in these three boxes. Let's get through it quickly because there's always the ridiculous MacGuffin that has to be chased in these superhero movies. But this one is so silly that I think it's kind of worth describing. It's sort of a triple MacGuffin. Um, and th- yeah, so the, the mother boxes are these... Um, uh, they're these um, sort of pulsing cubes. We don't really know what they do at first. We just know that um, the Amazons, which are Wonder Woman's people, are guarding one. Later we see that the Atlanteans, who are Aquaman's people, more about him later, they're guarding one. There's a third one that, that men have. I, I guess in this sort of a, you know, very Lord of the Rings-esque uh, way, you know, at some point these mother boxes almost destroyed the world. And so they had to be separated and hidden. Um, that You know, they're... We 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 know that they're trouble, and we know that Steppenwolf and his army of bugs is is coming to Earth for them. He <laughs> and they want to make the unity, which is what happens when you put them together. Right, the unity. Um, they're, they're, yeah, they're 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 utterly preposterous. Anyway, he he. So Steppenwolf comes. He basically you know kicks the Amazons' asses. He has even less trouble taking it from uh, the Atlanteans, and then um, uh, eventually. Um, there's a third box that the heroes have, you know, they, um, they, they, he'll want to take. And then the whole idea is that once he creates the unity, he will, uh, transform the earth into, um, you know, some much more horrible place. Right. Um, from from, really, the, from it, the glimpse we get of it, the earth would basically be sort of like a crystal formation or something after he got through with it. Right. That's somehow part of making it a hellscape. Right. Yeah. His, his, his whole evil plan is, is, is bad landscaping. Um, <laughs> All right. So we should talk about what the gang does with the, the mother box that they have, because there's this very sort of tossed off moment that's actually by far the most interesting potential thing in the movie. But first of all, let's talk about who the gang is. So we start off with Batman and Wonder Woman. Everybody's familiar with them. But they, there's a very long let's get the gang together period at the beginning of the movie. I would say it lasts 35 to 40 minutes before oh, they actually oh, start oh, doing anything. Oh, you're wrong because I timed it um, <laughs> because I, I, they just kept going. And I noticed this, this exact same thing in the last movie. Um, they, they, they're doing setup and exposition for over an hour and it's a two hour movie. Yeah, it's inc- it takes an incredibly long time to get to the action. Not that the action's that fun when you get there either. But so who are the new characters that they, they go out and scare up in, in Gotham City? One of them is Cyborg, uh, played by Ray Fisher. He's a sort of um, his father is a scientist at the place called Star Labs. We learn that he um, was in some sort of accident. It killed his mother. He nearly died, and then his father, we learn, used a mother box to turn him into uh, into a cyborg. Uh, his character is Cyborg. He, you know, uh, it seems like the only part of him that really survived was um, maybe three quarters of his face. 
Um, you know, the rest of him is all robotic. He, um, you know, from his body, uh, weapons can emerge. He also seems to have a constant Wi-Fi connection. He... Yeah, his power, I mean, to the degree he has a superpower, it's that he is able to sort of understand the internet beyond anyone else, right? He can sort of produce it right out of his body and be like looking at screens through his hands and things like that. Right. And then also because he was made with a mother box, he has some understanding of um, of, of, of how they work, which uh, in ways that don't exactly make sense uh, later proves useful. Um, after Cyborg, uh, there is Aquaman. A gung-ho cowboy type uh, covered in tattoos played by Jason Momoa, who um, people will remember from Game of Thrones. He was Cal Drogo in the first season. Um, he's a sort of, um, you know, whiskey chugging, um, you know, loose cannon type. Um, Batman finds him early in the film. He asks him to sort of join their team and he he demurs um, only after uh, only after uh the Atlantean mother box is stolen as he realizes he has to join uh, the fray. There, there's also a completely confounding uh, scene involving um, the actress Amber Heard as another Atlantean. I assume that will uh, make sense once there's an Aquaman movie. Yeah, I have to say that one of my favorite things, if only because it was so sort of uh, not in keeping with the rest of the movie, was the way Jason Momoa read his lines in this incredibly offhanded way. Like he just sounded like a surfer dude just walking out of a sandwich shop at every moment, no matter what the stakes were of the plot. And in a way, I guess that just sort of means that he wasn't really acting. He didn't seem to be expending an enormous amount of energy on his performance, but it gave him this nice, relaxed vibe that I was always sort of happy to have around. Yeah, I really liked it. He sort of struck me as like uh, the guy who goes for a fourth ride on the mecha- on the mechanical bull. Um, he, <laughs> he was just kind of there to have a blast. And I actually thought, you know, despite um, as much as all of the characters, you know, defied physics beyond, you know, any reasonable degree, he really defied f- physics beyond any reasonable degree. Um, uh, and, you know, he was always introduced with this, you know, sort of awful, you know, cock rock. Um, but despite <laughs> all that, I actually thought uh, his character was a bit of a, a bit of a blast. Yeah, the, I'm, I'm excited for the Aquaman movie. Aquaman was always my favorite on Super Friends. <laughs> the idea of like a guy who can talk to all the, the fish is great. Um, and so then we, there's one more character to add to the Justice League roundup. Yes. Um, finally, there's a there's a super heroic Jew. Um, our people are there. Uh, it's uh, Ezra Miller as the Flash, and he's 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 um, a sort of young, you know, eccentric, oddball type. Um, you know, a bit of a misfit. Um, he's mostly been running around stopping small crimes, it seems. And then um, Batman looks him up and he's like, yes, sign me up. I'm in. Um, Yeah, he's sort of the apprentice kind of character, right? He's kind of the superhero in training who's still wowed and awed by everything that that they can all do. Right. And he's both sort of game to to sign up as well as maybe a bit of a cowardly lion. Um, Yeah, he's and actually I I, I thought that um, what they did with that character was was really, really a lot of fun. Um, I I. You know, I actually was excited for the scenes in which he was in. Um, you know, there, you know, he has, you know, he just had all these sort of, uh, you know, fun ticks. Like, you know, when they go, when they enter the Batcave, you know, he he immediately says, "Look, it's a cave. It's a Batcave." You know, he hops around. He sits in every, uh, you know, Bat vehicle. Um, you know, he pauses. Um, you know, his eyes, you know, twitch. He's just um, this like nervous bit of energy that um, 
really worked as a characterization, I thought. I mean, he's also he serves as an audience proxy in a way. He's sort of like, you know, every kid, comic reading kid who's just excited to be in that world. And it's it's fun to see Ezra Miller. I don't know about you, but I mainly associate him with parts where he's incredibly drop dead cool and kind of cruel. I mean, the first time I saw him in anything was we need to talk about Kevin and he plays Kevin, the murderous teenager. And uh, and so just seeing him play a lighthearted character and, and have fun was was great. I really like Ezra Miller. Right. Um, and then I remember last last year he was um, the sort of... Um, um, uh, g- gothy, um, uh, possessed uh, teen, and uh, Fantastic Beast, somewhere to find them. Oh, I didn't see Fantastic Beast, but yeah, that's that's the sort of character that he usually owns. So to see him play someone sort of sweeter and more vulnerable was nice. Although I wish that he had gotten better dialogue, and sometimes his his lines made me cringe a bit. Jonathan, before we go on, I want to take a break here to tell you about another podcast on the Panoply Network. If you haven't heard Slate's Represent, you should really be a listener. Every week, smart and creative people join Slate culture writer Aisha Harris to discuss the latest films, TV shows, and happenings in Hollywood. Aisha has thoughtful conversations about race, gender, sexuality, and more with critics and thinkers such as Slate's own Jamel Bowie and Turner Classic Movies host Tiffany Vasquez. Aisha also talks to filmmakers and actors, including the Oscar-winning director Barry Jenkins of Moonlight, the acting legend Rita Moreno, and the co-creator of Master of None, Alan Yang. And before we get back to Justice League, Jonathan, one word from our sponsor. All right, Jonathan, back to Justice League. All right, so I want to talk about what they do when they get the mother box and what their first project is uh, before they, they start fighting the evil Steppenwolf. Because I thought it was absolutely insane that something so thematically rich happens right in the middle of a movie and then it's just moved beyond immediately. Right, yeah, they, they uh, Batman, I, I don't even think um, uh, things are so dire and Batman immediately concludes that, okay, well, we have this mother box. We're going to obviously use this power to bring uh, Superman back to life. Um, and then... They have a debate that they don't debate very hard about, you know, whether that is the an ethical thing to do. Um, <laughs> and then they just go ahead and do it. Not having ever heard of the Faust legend or Red Frankenstein or anything, they just think digging up Superman's body and reanimating it is a great idea. Yeah, I, and I like how, um, you know, when, when they're having that debate, Cyborg runs the numbers in his uh, mechanical brain and says, oh, yeah, I, I, that, that's going to work. So to me, the reanimation portion of this movie was it could have been a whole great movie in itself. It's sort of the coming together of, of horror and the superhero movie. It's it's a great question as to whether they're overstepping the bounds of nature and whether what they're doing is something Superman would have wanted, which they even ask. And then they just kind of shrug it off and, and reanimate him anyway. It's, it's incredibly easy to reanimate him. There's not any sort of struggle or learning curve about it. They just dip him in this sort of kryptonite liquid with with the mother box or whatever and he's magically reanimated then there's this brief moment that he's a bad guy right when he first comes to life he sort of doesn't remember who he is and he is almost like the frankenstein monster just someone who doesn't understand what's going on and wants to destroy everything around him but that also is is just too easily resolved for me right yeah i I, yes i i i I agree i i did find um i mean it's almost yeah it it is um it's sort of the number one rule of comic book team-ups you know before the team can team up they have to fight each other i mean that was basically the whole premise of the last movie it happened in avengers it's sort of one of those narrative beats that is sort of just part of the form um but you're right for here i I think for me it was there, there was really just no there was no dramatic momentum leading up to the reanimation and then once it happened it was you know, too clear how it would resolve. I, I did find um, there was one moment during that that I, I, I liked. And, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy about 
Zack Snyder's movies is um, his overuse of something called um, uh, timeline ramping. Sometimes it's called speed ramping, but basically it's it's like slow motion. It's similar. It's the effect from the Matrix that everybody knows. Um, right. It's, it's I guess it's when a shot goes into slow motion without cutting. Right. In the middle of a shot, there's different speeds. Right. Um, and so when you have a character who can move very fast, like the Flash, one of the one of the gags, which the film does a lot, is that you know everybody slows down and he's sort of moving at normal speed. Um, but there's this moment during their fight with Superman where the Flash is circling around, he's approaching, and then um, we suddenly see Superman, uh, you know, kind of grinning, turn his head at the same speed as the Flash, and then it dawns on on Ezra Miller that oh no, Superman can move just as fast as I can, um, and and that that to me um, was one of a couple of winks at um, the movie's own excesses that the movie made that that I did that I did appreciate. Yeah, well, the kind of rivalry between the two of them, right? There's also a moment late in the movie where Ezra Miller, where the Flash is is saving a family who's being, you know, menaced by the flying insect guys, and uh, and he looks over and sees Superman flying by with an entire house on his hand or an entire apartment building, right? The idea being right. like he's saving hundreds of people at once. Yeah, I, I, so I, I think that the movie. I mean, you know, for me, this material um, is best treated the way that I think the best Marvel movies do it, which is sort of um, in this. Um, you know, grand, but also hammy and self-aware way, kind of the way that the comic books were written by Stanley and Jack Kirby in the sixties um, and, uh, and and seventies. And, and um, you know, this sort of uh, exaggerated, but you know, very very aware uh, way. Um, and you know, that's that's it's how the better Avenger, it's how the better Marvel movies go. Um, this movie wants to do it, but it's just so ponderous. Uh, so it makes these nods. Um, but uh, but it really can only go so far. Right. And so we spent all this time complaining about how long it takes the gang to get together, including the reanimation of Superman. But then after they do get together, it's not like the movie gets tremendously better. I mean, the last mm-hmm. 30 to 40 minutes of it are just a huge long action scene that takes place inside an abandoned nuclear reactor in Russia. And I just, I mean, honestly, the main sensation that I had walking out of this two hour long movie was just such waste, you know, such an incredible waste of resources. And everything just seemed so expensive and excessive. And I mean, to me, it really it brought home why it is that this this genre, despite the fact that it, you know, periodically gets reanimated by some kind of mother box of, of cleverness, is is just really on the wane. Mm. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think it's something almost... Um... I think it's it's something inherent to the Zack Snyder approach um, that isn't um, endemic to the Marvel movies. I, I just think it's a bad approach. I mean, it, it was sort of mirrored in the um, the truly dreadful Suicide Squad movie, um, and I think I think also that these movies are sort of beset by. I mean, you know, not that there's a directorial vision worth respecting, but I think there's also a lot of sort of you know creative tampering in these films. I mean, obviously, you know, this film there were you know a number of you know, minor narrative inconsistencies that, you know, sort of gave the sense that this thing was spent a lot of time in the editing room. The same thing happened to Suicide Squad, which is the uh, one of the other movies that DC has put out. Um, that said, I don't think that these movies are irredeemable. And, you know, films like Wonder Woman from earlier this year and Thor from earlier this year are the proof. Um, I, you know, I think it's a form in which there are more and new stories to tell. Um but the ones, but these Justice League movies are 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 not among them, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there are a few little touches in there, and and it was sort of nice to see Wonder Woman and to visit Themyscira, the place that the Amazons come from, one more time. But everybody felt very plugged into their 
whole to me. It didn't it didn't I didn't feel, for example, if you compare it to Thor Ragnarok, another recent superheroes hanging out movie, which I also did not think was a, you know, sort of total classic of the genre. But there was a sense of sort of warmth (laughs) and connection when the characters are hanging out. And I guess this movie just felt much more sterile and empty to me. There were sort of catchphrases assigned to people and you know, just that thing where you blow someone away and then there's this really embarrassing moment toward the end when I think it's the cyborg, you know, accomplishes some feat of destroying a bunch of insect dudes. And he goes, booyah. And I just thought, first of all, who says booyah anymore? This character would never say that. It's just it just seemed like such a random catchphrase. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I think um, I think this film sort of goes for the um, it it strives for that 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 warmth and it sometimes has the vague feel of that warmth. Uh, and, and sometimes it works in basically, you know, five minute spurts. I mean, I think one successful scene is, you know, when they're um, on this, you know, bat transport heading toward this final battle. Um, and, you know, I, I think they're they're beginning to talk about their mission and the import of it. And, and Aquaman sort of starts going on this like long kind of confessional rant, talking about how he feels about everyone. He keeps talking and it's sort of beginning to get awkward and you're wondering what's going on. And then he looks down and realizes that um, Wonder Woman's golden lasso, which compels one to tell the truth, uh, is on him. Yeah, that was totally delightful that basically he sat on the on the what is it? The lasso of Hestia by mistake and, and, and started confessing his true feelings and being all, all emo. That was yeah. great. And that was that was probably right. a Joss Whedon, I would imagine, amendment to the script. It had that feeling of, you know, kind of warmth and an actual um, comedy, you know, that, that had to right. have come from him. I mean, I guess this movie is sort of like WYSIWYG, right? I mean, if you are a fan of these movies, you're going to see it. You won't be completely disappointed. It's not going to win anybody over who doesn't already care about these characters. Um, and and it is what it is. But can we talk a little bit about the uh, the end and what it's teasing and, and pointing to next in the DC universe? Sure. Yeah, there are two. Uh, there's there's a mid-credit scene and then there's a post-credit scene, um, which I don't believe the DC mo- movies have done before and which all of the Marvel movies probably probably – uh, all the Marvel movies have begun to overdo. Um, it is a Marvel-esque touch. Um, and then true to form, you know, the first one of them is a bit of a gag. Uh, it involves Superman and the Flash uh, having a race. Um, it's, you know, it's it's fine. They're, they, it turns out that they are characters who are fun to be around, and hopefully they're much more fun to be around next time uh, when there's an, uh, an inevitable sequel. And then the, the final tease... Uh, marks the return of uh, Lex Luthor, who was played, I think, somewhat confoundingly by, by Jesse Eisenberg in the last film. Uh, we see him, uh, we first see him in jail. Uh, it seems as though they're removing him. Then we see him again on his yacht um, in some picturesque place. Um, and uh, a, another figure emerges from 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 another boat onto his boat. Um, that guy got a round of applause in my screening, but I had no idea who it was. Who is it? You're right. Um, so that was, uh, 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 yeah, same at my screening. That's a character called uh, Deathstroke the Terminator. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it was very popular, apparently. Yeah. I mean, he's sort of, um, you know, not a, a household name um, supervillain, but definitely, a, you know, a beloved character. Um, he's, he's, uh, he's an assassin. I, I don't really remember much more about him other than um, he's been a prominent DC Comics villain and generally people think that he kicks ass. <laughs> I hope he's better than Steppenwolf because really I could not have cared less about that particular perpetrator of evil. Did you notice who played him? No. It was um I think it was um uh, Joe Manganiello. You mean the the new guy, Deathstroke the yeah, Terminator? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um who was um uh you know, 
people may remember was uh, delightful in the Magic Mike movies. Right. Stripping in a, in a convenience yeah. store. But he was so covered in, in masks and costumes that I had no idea who was underneath. And an eye patch. Yeah. All right. Well, Jonathan, I hope that you'll come back and help me put it together when we get the next DC movie, which will be Aquaman, right? Next year. Yes. And uh, as I said, I kind of like that character. I liked his relaxed surfer dude vibe. So, um, so hopefully that'll be taking these guys into a better world. Anyway, thank you. I look forward to reading your review and thank you for coming in to talk DC with me. It was a pleasure.